All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm Josh Patterson, one of your hosts, and unfortunately, uh, Marty's not with us today, but it is of no fault of his own. So this is time when I'm going to do a, a public confession of my sins uh, to my peers. <laughs> so, and, and also issue a public apology to Marty. Uh, so basically what happened was Marty and I used Google Calendars uh, to, um, you know, book our recordings, uh, our, our guests and, and interviews. And I normally enter those. And so what happened was I entered this interview for this morning uh, in the wrong, under the wrong email address. I put it on my work email instead of the, the podcast email, so Marty never saw it um, and was not aware of the interview. And so I completely blew it. It was my fault. So many apologies, Marty. Um, hopefully, you know, our listeners don't turn on us, or at least turn on me, because um, I can't handle a, an angry riot at my house right now. So anyway, <laughs> this morning I, I am excited, though. Uh, because Marty and I had this idea and we wanted to, to do kind of like a, a mini series around the atonement. Um, a lot of you have sent questions to us or, you know, messaged us or whatever, asking us like, hey, can you talk about the atonement? And we kind of always put it off because there's a million ways to talk about the atonement. And so what we finally decided to do is, all right, well, let's let's do a mini series on this. Let's get uh, three different people with three different perspectives uh, to come in and talk. And so that's what we're doing. So today... Uh, we're recording our, our first um, part in that series uh, with our guest, J.D. Myers, and he's here with me right now. So I'm going to go ahead and bring him in. J.D., how's it going? Good, hey, Jeremy. good. You can call me Jeremy if you want, J.D. Yeah, I have two different sort of pen names. So one okay. is Jeremy, one is J.D., but I generally go by Jeremy. So anyway, your sins are forgiven you, by the way. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not I, having Marty on. Yeah, I appreciate it. <laughs> Well, thank thank you for uh, for hopping on this morning. And it's uh, kind of early recording. I see. I think we both have coffee, or at least I saw you have a mug. Is it coffee? It is coffee. It yep. Okay, cool. Coffee. Survive a good on coffee. Yeah. Yeah, it's a gift from God. It really is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sweet. There better be coffee in heaven. I think there will be. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I'm convinced. <laughs> like really good coffee too. Ooh, yes. Know? So. Which Marty will appreciate because Marty is a self-proclaimed coffee uh, snob. Mm. Um, so he taught me how wrong I was for 
the coffee that I like. Um, so there's that. <laughs> uh, but anyway, before we kind of like jump in and, and hear a little bit about you, we have a question uh, that we ask all of our guests when they come on the show. Um, and we hype it up. It's, it's kind of a big deal. Um, and so hopefully you have a good answer. If not, then I'm just going to have to shut down the Skype call and it's going to be a sad day. <laughs> Uh, so <laughs> here, here's the question. Who's your favorite ice hockey team? Oh, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> uh, all right. We're going to have to go with, um, the Timberwolves, I guess. Okay. Right on. Do you want to know why? Why? Cause it's the only team I know. Solid answer. <laughs> <laughs> I have all right, I have, a, I have a confession of my own then. Yeah. Never in my entire life have I watched a full game of hockey. Oh, man. That's sad. I feel <laughs> is the, like... Is the, is the conversation over now? No, it's... We're, so we're graceful here at Rethinking <laughs> Faith Podcast. I um, mean, we uh, forgive people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, ice, ice hockey is like... Uh, is, is my favorite sport. Uh, Marty's really into it. He is a Chicago Blackhawks fan. Mm-hmm. I like the Washington Capitals. Um, and I play ice hockey. Um which is a ton of fun. So I, I would recommend if you ever get a chance, go to like a prof, like a live professional game and mm-hmm. just like for fun. It's a great experience. Um, most people really like would. it. I've heard, I've heard it's lots of fun. Yeah, most people like it in person, even if hockey's not their thing. Yeah, and I live just, uh, you know, an hour out of, outside of Portland, Oregon. So oh, cool. Okay. That's, you know, I would be able to catch a game up there if I wanted to, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Sweet, man. Well, sounds good. So thank you for playing along with our, our silly question. <laughs> <laughs> now, I guess we could get a little bit more serious. So for our listeners who have uh, not come across your work before, could you just let us know a little bit like who are you? What do you do? Maybe a little bit about your faith upbringing, those kind of things. Sure. So I'm Jeremy Myers, and I grew up in Montana, uh, second oldest of 10 children. So my parents were busy <clears throat> uh, raising us all. And my dad was a pastor there. And so I grew up in the church as a pastor's kid, went to a Christian school, went to uh, my undergraduate Moody Bible Institute, and then uh, pastored for a while there. And then after pastoring for several years, went back to school to get my master's of theology degree at Dallas Theological Seminary. And I am married to Wendy, and we have three girls 18, 16, and 14, so our hands are full there, but uh, I get treated like a king in my household, so I have no complaints. (laughs) And uh, currently, I work as a chaplain for the Federal Bureau of Prisons uh, at a prison in in Oregon. So um, right now, with the coronavirus going on and everything, everything's up in the air, but thankfully, I'm one of those people who are still at work because we're considered essential. Mm. So my heart and thoughts and... um, goes out to everybody who's struggling right now without work. It's it's not it's a very difficult time. But uh, anyway, that's where I'm at. And I, I am an author. I don't know. I, I, I keep lost track of how many books I've published. It's about <laughs> a lot. Well, <laughs> I think. Yeah, and I just announced this last week, I finally finished with one book that's uh, going to be out in May. It's on the church. That's oh, sort cool. of, a, it, it, it's called Close Your Church for Good. It'll be out um, May 27th. Uh, but... Um, that's that explains, by the way, that J.D. Myers and Jeremy Myers. I have two different types of books. One's on the all of my church, books on the church are by Jeremy Myers, and books on everything else, sort of more theological, topic type stuff, like you know, books on the atonement, 
are by J.D. Myers. So I don't know why I did that at some point, but that explains it. Sweet. Sounds good. I think maybe there's like a, <laughs> like a, uh, when you go to write the more theological stuff, maybe J.D. sounds more like theological. I don't know. <laughs> well, maybe. I mean, you know, N.T. Wright. Yeah, exactly. Lewis, right? <laughs> yeah, see, there it is. There it is. <laughs> it, it's a thing. I don't know why it's a thing, but it's a thing. But it works yeah. out. Sweet yeah. man, well that's awesome. So I didn't, I didn't realize that uh, you went to Moody and um, Dallas. Uh, so that's pretty cool. Um, I so I unfortunately I don't have a seminary degree currently, uh, but I went to Messiah College, uh, which is like a, a small liberal arts school in uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, but today, so you mentioned it for us already, and I kind of already alluded to it. But we're going to be talking about uh, this word atonement, and so. Um, when we say atonement, what do we mean by that for people uh, who might not be familiar with the term? Well, that's a really good question, actually. Uh, lots of people <laughs> think they know what the atonement is. And generally, I think when most Christians refer to the atonement, they're thinking of the death of Jesus on the cross for our sin. Okay. And sort of whatever Jesus did there to help bring us back into unity with God or something like that. Sometimes you hear people say atonement could be breaking up into at one meant something sort of like that, and so it's this process or action or activity of Jesus to bring us back into one meant unity, relationship, something like that with God. So, and I wouldn't really argue with that too much, honestly. I mean, I've written a book on the atonement, and in it, I, I, I'm not a fan of the term atonement itself. Um, it's more of an Old Testament concept. I don't think any New Testament uh, word really is properly translated as atonement, uh, but that's, um, you know, not, not, if someone wants to talk about the atonement of Jesus on the cross, I'm not going to argue with them too much because I think we understand, you know, uh, terminology aside that yes, Jesus did something critically important there on the cross to bring us back into to relationship with God. And mm. so that's what we can talk about regardless of the terms being used. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's good. Um, and so, like like you, I mean, you, you mentioned this, but there's, you know, tons of different ways people talk about the atonement, uh, people argue about the atonement, you know, every theological school of thought seems to think they have the version of atonement, <laughs> <laughs> um, which makes me think that atonement is probably a really important thing to talk about. Um, and I think, you know, some of the reasons that it might be important is because our view and understanding of the atonement probably... Uh, tells us a lot about what we think God to be like, right? Um, or or um, how we understand Jesus, all these kind of things. But what what other things do you think make this this conversation around atonement so important? Well, I think people in general who are aware that God exists, and I'm not just talking about Christians here, but this would be people of all various religions, whatever their views are on God. Uh, recognize and understand that something is not right uh, between us and God. And so different religions try to approach that issue in different ways. You know, how can we become right with God? How can we hear from God, know that we have been forgiven of our sins, however they define sins, however they define forgiveness, that sort of a thing. And so atonement is sort of this universal quest or concept of, of how 
how, how you know what happened? What went wrong? Why are we separated from God in spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, in so many other ways? And, and what can we do about it? And so it's really one of the basic questions of humanity, especially in in relation to how we relate to God and God relates to us. And so um, and it really gets into psychology as well. I mean, so many people suffer under so much guilt and shame and fear of their past and what was done to them and even what they've done. And until we get this question answered of how can we make things right or how are things made right, uh, people really continue to suffer and struggle under those sorts of things. And so it's really a, a basic question of just human survival, human existence, and human relationships on this earth. So, so that's why I think the question is so important for us to understand and study and even seek an answer for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's good. Um, and within that, within that quest you know, of trying to figure things out, um, people have put forth all sorts of different um, ideas or different theories, different models of atonement. Um, and I know in the, the book that we're talking about today um, or using to kind of guide our conversation is a book you put out called Nothing But the Blood of Jesus, How the Sacrifice of Jesus Saves the World from Sin. And I'll be sure to link that in the, the show notes for our listeners. Um, but when it comes to uh, the atonement and, and specifically in the, the start of your book, uh, you kind of laid out some things like some ideas about the atonement that you th- thought weren't helpful, like kind of criticized um, some maybe um, bad understandings of atonement. So what, in your opinion, what are some like ideas in atonement that aren't necessarily helpful? And then we'll jump into um, what you put forth in your book. Right. So there's a couple different things. Like, for example, atonement itself, I sort of mentioned earlier, I'm not fond of the word. It's really an Mm -hmm. Old Testament word related to the blood sacrifices uh, that were carried out in the in the the temple, ultimately. And um, it has it carries the idea of sort of cleansing or purifying. uh, And and it requires a a regular cycle of repurification. So this is the Hebrew word kipper I'm, I'm referring to. And I think that when it comes to Jesus, we don't see a that we need a, an ongoing cycle of repurification. Um, it's it's a once for all, you know, take, to, took care of everything, whatever that everything is. So I, I talk about that just a little bit in the book. But again, I, I'm not too concerned with the terminology. The main issue for me in my book, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus, that I talk about and the main area that I struggle with is this idea that in order to forgive us for our sin, God must have blood sacrifice. And this is the concept that I think is very common in Christian circles and Christian teaching, Christian theology a lot of times. Like, uh, you know, in, in, in the Hebrew scriptures, before God could forgive the his, Israelite people, Hebrew people from their sins, they sacrificed the you know blood of bulls and goats, and it was temporary. We sort of get some of this terminology from the book of Hebrews, this idea anyway. But now, you know, Jesus has come along, and he's done away with those Old Testament sacrifices by sacrificing, offering up his own blood. And, and again, I'm not denying it. This is all biblical terminology thinking that I that I'm using here. But but it's this concept that God can't love us, can't forgive us because sin is such a great affront to him, a great problem to him, and his wrath is poured out on us. And you see, especially this time of year, Easter's, uh, uh, you know, Resurrection Sunday is only a few days away. We're right here in Holy Week, and and lots of people around the world are going to be hearing these sorts of sermons last week um, and then coming up here on Good Friday. Uh, tomorrow, 
and on Easter, that, that God had to pour out his wrath on somebody, and it was going to be poured out on us, but instead Jesus, you know, he poured it out on Jesus, and Jesus shed his blood so that God could forgive us and God could love us again. And uh, what I basically argue, I argue against that whole idea in the book, uh, that, that I, basically I'm saying God did not need blood sacrifice. He has never needed blood sacrifice to forgive us for our sins. Um, forgiveness has always been free and gracious and complete because that's who God is. And so therefore, what's all this deal, this talk about sacrifice in the book and why did Jesus die? And, and, and so that's really what the book is about. Um, and, and that's probably what we'll be talking a little bit more about here. So I'll leave it there. Did that sort of answer the question? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, okay. that's, that's really helpful. And I think um, what like one thing that, that I've pointed out before as well, and it, I mean, it goes in line exactly with what you're saying is there's these like um, caricatures of what people call penal substitutionary atonement uh, that Christians think they ought to believe. <laughs> even right. if even if in like the realm of academia, you know, scholars wouldn't articulate it in the way that a lot of pastors do on a Sunday morning. Um, and so they can say, oh, well, PSA is still great. But like the way it's being articulated is not helpful. Um, and so I think that that kind of falls in line there. Um, just this idea, like, uh, you know, N.T. Wright criticizes the caricature of like, oh, you know, um, we did all these bad things. God got mad. He had to punch somebody. Luckily, you know, Jesus stepped in the way. He punched him in the nose and now we're good, um, mm -hmm. which is, of course, a caricature. But there's a lot of people who think that's what they ought to believe when it comes to atonement. And so hopefully we can clear up some of those uh, things today. And so in your book, um, I thought your approach uh, was super uh, helpful. I thought it was very unique. I liked uh, what you did. You kind of said there's like these five different things uh, that we kind of need to understand. And they, they all five kind of work together. Um, and if you understand these five things together, then you're going to have a, a much better picture here. And so those five things were sin, law, sacrifice, scapegoating, and blood. And so I thought maybe um, we could take some time, just look at, you know, each of those five things and then try to put it all together. Does that sound good to you? Yeah, perfect. Sweet. All right. Well, let's start with sin. Um, and a, another unique thing you did in your book is a lot of people try to just say, okay, this is what sin is. But you said maybe it'd be more helpful to start with what sin is not. So when we talk mm -hmm. about sin, what, what are we talking about? So again, you ask the average person what sin is. And again, I'm not just talking about Christians here, but people in general who have a belief in God. And most people are going to say sin is anything we do that makes God angry. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, God has these rules and guidelines for how he wants us to live, and sin is when we do the opposite of those sorts of things. Uh, it's sort of the common view of sin, and um, again, it's one of those things, we theologians are always so nuanced. <laughs> <laughs> right. I really don't have too much of a problem with that definition of sin, I just think it doesn't go far enough. Um, for me, in the way I think, and I think a lot of theologians are this way, I imagine you are the same way, uh, it's, it's not enough to say, well, okay, that's what sin is. We want to know why. Uh, you know, why does God not want the Hebrew people to mix milk and meat? Uh, <laughs> right. you know, for us, that's not an issue. Well, that's not sinful, so we get a cheeseburger. Uh, but but why was that an issue for them? And, and and then we even get into some other things. So I want to know why some things did did God say don't do this and yes do that. 
Um, and, and when I studied sin in this way, I, I sort of got behind the issue of sin. That this concept of don't do this because it offends God. Uh, it's sort of the surface answer, sort of like uh, when a parent tells a two-year-old or three-year-old child, don't do that, you know, don't touch the stove. Uh, well, on, on the surface, that's fine. Don't do it. But but why? There's God is a logical God. He's a reasonable being. And I think that he doesn't just give random commands to humans because he's God. You know, I'm God, do what I want. And, and sometimes parents do that way with their kids. You know, why? Well, just because I'm your parent. And, you know, for an infant, for, for toddlers, that's that's probably a good enough answer. But I think as we mature, God expects us to enter into dialogue with him. And he's not afraid. He's not offended when we say, but why, God? What's the explanation here? So that's what I try to get into in this chapter on sin, is the why behind some of these commands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think what's interesting is you kind of draw out a big part of that why has to do with violence. Um, like you mentioned how, you know, sin, the first time we see this uh, come about in Scripture isn't in the Garden of Eden, but it's it's actually after in the whole bit with Cain and Abel. Um, and there's violence there, there's murder, and the other thing you tie in is, is scapegoating. Mm. So ultimately, sin uh, leads to these kind of behaviors. Is that a fair way to, to talk about it? Yes. I think that a lot of times, especially early in Scripture, when sin is mentioned, when God is writing through the prophets uh, about sin or against sin, sin is very often nearly always associated, connected, attached somehow to violence or the things that lead to violence. And so you just look at, say, say the Ten Commandments, for example, and we'll, we'll be talking about the commandments a bit when we get to law. Uh, um, you look at the things in our world and in history and society that cause violence between people, and the Ten Commandments are written to stop violence. So ultimately, when, when we do get into what sin is, I do sort of define it as my book, as anything that, is, that leads to violence. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that uh, what that shows us is that from God's perspective, and I've, I've gotten a lot of pushback on this, this thing I'm going to say next from various people elsewhere. I, I, I hint and I state even uh, at various places in the book that, that God isn't that concerned with sin <laughs> too much. Um, and I know it's a shocking idea because that's the exact opposite of what we've often been taught. And so I want to sort of explain myself. Yes, God's concerned about sin. God hates sin. And I am not arguing against that at all. But when we see why God gives us commands and what he stated and that how closely it is related to violence, it seems like God's real concern isn't with don't do this, yes, do that, but please, don't hurt each other. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, his commands that he gives us are for our benefit, and so that we live on this life in unity and love and fellowship with other human beings and with him. Uh, and one of the best ways to do that is to stop us from engaging in violence towards each other. So, um, you know, that, that uh, helps us expo- understand sort of the why behind the various commands and, and why God is so concerned with our sin. Yes, he is concerned. Yes, sin is a big deal. But it's not because sin is, you know, damaging to him so much, but because sin damages us and God loves us. And so he doesn't want to see us get hurt. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it it you also you like you draw in then this this idea of relationship ultimately, right? Like we were created. I like to tell my students we we're created, you know, by relationship for relationship. Um, and you you really hint and bring out this idea of relationship as well. And ultimately, what violence does is it tears apart the relationships that we were created for with each other and with God. Um, and so I think that understanding things like that it makes it really uh, helpful to, you know, it makes sin less like arbitrary, I guess, where it's just a list of like, don't do these, like these are naughty things, don't do it. But it, it shows you like, no, this is why it matters because there's so much more going on, uh, you know, like you articulated so well. So that's very helpful for sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, thank you. And I didn't really mention it. You sort of did um, already, but this whole introduction of sin there in Genesis, between Genesis 3 and 4, and you mentioned the the scapegoating and rivalry and, you know, lots of people say sin int- was introduced there in Genesis 3 when uh, first Eve and then Adam ate from this forbidden tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And again, I'm not going to argue with that too much, but what I point out in the book is this concept that sin itself isn't mentioned, isn't referred to, isn't really defined as, uh, until Genesis chapter 4, uh, when, uh, in the context, um, Cain is about to murder, or has murdered, his brother Abel. And that's when God finally talks about sin. And so I point out in the book that now the cycle of sin is complete, mm-hmm. and uh, and so now God is saying, this is what sin is, when a brother murders his brother, and there's violence. And so I point, sort of point out in, in, in connection with your 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 uh, reference to relationship there. Look, they were in a relationship, one of the closest family relationships that exists, brother and brother. Um, and and now violence has entered the world, and sin has entered the world, and it leads us to commit violence against our brethren. And when we think about it, we're all related on this planet Earth. We're all part of the human family, and so any type of violence even against those that we are told we should hate, you know, the the Muslims over there or whatever. <laughs> um, there are brothers. Those are our sisters. And and when we call for violence or engage in violence against them, that is the sin of Cain murdering his brother Abel. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's sort of what this cycle that we see introduced there in Genesis chapter 3 and 4. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, too, just... Uh, like one more thing um, that I would add that I think, um, you know, your your concept and idea points to as well is like tearing apart of relationships is like dehumanizing. It's taking mm. people out of what they were created to be. Um, and I know this is the language a lot that like N.T. Wright uses is this idea that sin dehumanizes us. It doesn't, you know, saying like, oh, I, I sinned because I'm a human. It's like, well, that's not really what you're created to be, right? Um, so, so sin dehumanizes us, not makes us human. <laughs> and uh, right. the, the relationship and the, and the breakdown of relationship leading to violence kills people, which is ultimately dehumanizing because you're taking life. Um, so it all works together so well. And it's such a, I don't know, that's such a more, like a more helpful way for me to, to look at sin and think about things, um, especially because I was never like taught about it that way growing up, right? It was always like, oh, well, you don't do this because I said so, or like, it's just a naughty thing. I don't know, like moralistic kind of whatever. Um, 
so I think those more nuanced ideas are helpful and, and anytime we can communicate them, I think it gives us a better picture. So, Right. No, I like you how you brought out the fact that it dehumanizes us. I've been talking about violence and murder, but you know, there's lots of things and Jesus talked about this a lot, Sermon on the Mount and so on, um, and Paul and everywhere else. It's not just violence, you know, well, I'm not a murderer, so therefore, what are you saying, Jeremy? You're, I'm not a sinner. No, it's the, any, any time, anything we do that damages our relationships with other human beings. Um, and so, you know, rivalry and accusation and hatred and lust and, you know, all these things that, yes, the Bible talks about and defines as sin, but why? It's because they are damaging our relationship, destroying what God created us to be, to live in relationship with him and with one another. And uh, so, yeah, anything we do, it's not just the end, the end result, that violence at the end where one person kills another. No, it's that whole spectrum of things that damages and destroys our relationship that uh, the, the Bible is concerned with. Um, and, and so, yeah, that's a good point to bring out there. Sweet. Great. Well, um, so let's kind of uh, move forward a little bit. So this idea of sin starts getting thrown around. And then the way a lot of people talk about it is like, all right, well, there's sin. So now we need to figure this out. Let's throw in a bunch of laws. <laughs> a lot of people kind of have that understanding when it comes to the Old Testament. So what, what do we need to know about uh, law? What's important to know about law in this uh, conversation? Yes. So you've already mentioned relationship, and that is so key and really central to everything, sort of the, the unifying theme throughout the book of uh, my book, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. And relationship, we were made for relationship. In fact, I do talk about in the book that this is the first command that God gave us is to live mm -hmm. in relationship to Adam and Eve. You know, it's the very first thing he wanted them to do. And then, of course, what they do, eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that initially destroys their relationship with each other. It destroys their relationship with God. They start blaming each other. Well, the woman whom you gave to me, you know, she gave me the fruit. It's not my fault. It's her. And even in there, Adam is blaming God whom you gave to me. Right. So immediately their relationship is damaged and there's mistrust, there's fear, there's blame. And, and um and so we see these things enter into the world as well. And so a lot of people think that, well, okay, this is the problem. Uh, we have this problem of sin, again, however you define it. And so God set out to try to fix this problem. And how did he do that? Well, he gave law. And that's what we have, say, in Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments and then going on there through the rest of the Pentateuch for all this law. And then sort of the way the Christian explanation of this goes is, and the Hebrew people lived under the law for a while, and that didn't work. And so then God also sent, say, the prophets and uh, the judges and the prophets and the kings and all of that also. It, was, it, it helped, but it wasn't perfect until finally Jesus came along and showed us the real way to live in relationship with one another and with God. And so now everything is hunky-dory and everything's good. Um, <laughs> Now, that's a bit of a character again, um, but what I argue in the book is that is not a proper way to understand the law. Uh, when I'm convinced, and I, I, I need to give credit to John Salehammer, he wrote a massive book called The Meaning of the Pentateuch. I strongly encourage people to read it. Meaning of and, the Pentateuch. Yeah, The Meaning of the Pentateuch. And so I, I got this idea from him. 
Uh, he he suggests that the reason Moses wrote the Pentateuch is because Moses knew that the law would not work. Hmm. Uh, that that it Moses uh, in sort of in relationship with God gave the Hebrew people what they wanted, even though both God and Moses knew it wasn't going to work. And so the Pentateuch is sort of a history of what God originally wanted, what He created humanity for in Genesis one and two. What happened? What you know the the ultimate question that all humans have why things have gone awry, Genesis 3 and 4. And then the rest of the Pentateuch is sort of uh, what God has tried to do in response, which is re-enter into relationship with humanity, and what humans have asked of God instead, which is law. And Moses is showing through the Pentateuch that this thing that humans want from God, law and priests and mediators and, and someone to speak to us, speak to God for us, instead of having a one-on-one, you know, intimate relationship with God, which is what God wants, that's never going to work. And so that's why at the end of the Pentateuch, Moses comes back, you know, and, and basically says, by the way, when you finally give up on all of this, this is when God is going to write a new law, a new covenant in, in your hearts, and one not based on law. And, and then we sort of see this theme pop up all over the place again in the prophets, where they just keep failing and failing and failing at the law. And, you know, Jeremiah and others say, eventually you guys are going to realize this is not working. Hmm. And so uh, maybe at that point you will realize the only way to live in relationship with God and with each other is to give up on law. Mm-hmm. So that, again, John Salehammer, The Meaning of the Pentateuch, a massive volume. Um, but I think maybe he's written a shorter summary recently. I, I can't recall now off the top of my head. Um, sort of like Greg Boyd did with his yeah. uh, um, crucifixion of the warrior God, and then he, two massive volumes, and then he came out with a shorter <laughs> version, Cross Vision. I think John Salehammer did something similar. Okay. Uh, but anyway, um, if you want the full treatment, get the meaning of the Pentateuch. Um, and, and, and so I really find this helpful. And in fact, when you read the Pentateuch in this way, we actually see this developing. I, I talk a little bit in the book, you know, just imagine, Josh, are you married? Yes. Okay. So imagine... You you get married, and I think to some degree all marriages fall into this trap, is if somewhere early on in the relationship, maybe when we're dating or maybe after we get married, things, we have an argument, we have a fight, and we say, okay, what can we do? Fights are never fun in a marriage or in any relationships. And, and so we say, what can we do to fix this? And often what we do is we start creating laws and rules. Okay, so next time you will do this and I will do this and that will hopefully avoid it. And if we go down that path, if we continue, and sometimes I agree, sometimes that's necessary, especially in a, early on in a relationship. And, and that's one of the reasons possibly God gave in and, and allowed the law. But if, if we go down that path and we add more and more laws, is that going to stop all the arguments and <laughs> fights and problems? It isn't. We're go- more are going to pop up. And so if we continue to go down, then, okay, well, now we'll add this law. Now we'll add that law. Now we'll add this prohibition, this command. And eventually you're going to end up with, who knows, maybe 613 commandments of <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, things you can and cannot do. And that still is not going to give you the relationship that you both want and desire, 
because there's always going to be more problems. And then you get into the legalistic stuff. Well, you said, but well, fine, you know, that's not what I meant. And you have the loopholes and, you know, well, we were going to go to bed at 10 o'clock and now it's 10.03. And it just, <laughs> what happens yeah. is that, is that the law actually starts to create more and more problems because you start to follow the law, the letter of the law, rather than the spirit or the intent behind the law, which was relationship. Mm-hmm. And, and so the law, uh, the more and more you go down that path, it cre- it actually does the opposite of what it was intended, and it creates more <laughs> problems rather than less. And so the answer, the solution to all that is to sort of discard the whole thing and go back to the beginning and say, we want a relationship. How do we have a relationship? And how? Jesus showed us. That's true. Jesus did show us. It's love. Love for God and love for one another. And if you love, guess what? Love fulfills the law. (laughs) If you just love someone, you know, how do I want to be treated? That's how I should treat someone else thinking about others before you think of yourself, uh, looking out for their needs, all of these good, healthy, biblical, gospel-related themes. When you do that, you're just thinking of other people out of love for them. Guess what? You don't need any of those laws, the 613. You don't need the 10, because now you are living in a relationship based on love, and um, it's this new covenant, you know, written onto our hearts rather than on tablets of stone. And we automatically, naturally do all the things the law said we should do, and it's no longer based on law. So anyway, that's sort of a summary of what I argue there in the law. And again, I give credit to John Salehammer for that. Yeah, yeah, that's really helpful, and it's really great. And I think, too, just like uh, to point out, because, you know, we're in Holy Week as we record this. It's uh, Monday, Thursday, which growing up as a little kid, I definitely always thought they were saying Monday, Thursday, and I was yep, so confused. Like, what the heck is going on? <laughs> you Christian people, you don't even know the days of the week. Come on. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. But, um, yeah, so I, but I think about, uh, you know, Jesus, because Jesus is making these exact points that you're just laying out. The Pharisees are using the law in ways um, that yes, they're following the law, but they're hurting people and they're failing because they're not hitting at the intent behind the law. And then, you know, you get the whole like, love the Lord your God and love your neighbors yourself. All of the law hinges on this, which is the point about love that you made. So this is all Jesus's teaching. Like this isn't some, you know, crazy ideas or something like that. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's really helpful because you pointed out as well how like when with with the law, when we start to to mistreat it, we can use it to actually, it can cause us to sin. We can follow the law and then it brings us to sin, which I think Jesus was pointing out with some of the Pharisees. Um, and I think just maybe like a, a practical example of this today uh, could be, uh, say for example, uh, you hold yourself to a non-affirming view of LGBTQ. So like you say, okay, gay people shouldn't get married. It's a sin. It's against the Bible. And then as a Christian, you go and try to apply that to society at large as a whole. I think that is a way that you, that the law is then causing problems because you're applying the law to a group of people that it wasn't made for anyway. <laughs> so Absolutely. Like, yeah. So I think is that is that like a helpful modern day example of, of something like that? that people yeah, would- no, that's that's a great example of it. And uh, yeah, even even if a person who holds that view of of gay marriage, um, right. By applying it to a group of people 
who are outside of Christianity, however you want to, again, you know, make this the law of the land sort right. of a thing. Right. Uh, you you end up behaving hatefully towards a group of people. Yep. Uh, and, and that is the opposite intent of the law, mm-hmm. or of of relationship, I guess I should say. So, uh, yeah, no, that's that's a great example, and there's lots that are similar. Um, you know, even how I mentioned before the Muslims, even how some Christians encourage us to to engage in violence or condemn people who are of a different faith. Uh, it, it's just that there's another example of where we are applying law, which was supposed to lead us into a loving relationship, but we end up applying it in a hateful and hurtful way. Mm-hmm. Does the opposite of what God wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks. That's that's super helpful. And then uh, we'll go ahead and jump uh, to the next bit then, uh, which is this idea of sacrifice, um, which ties very closely to the law, uh, which ties very closely to sin. So again, all of your ideas are all, all intertwined. And so basically with sacrifice, um, you laid out that there's like these three different uh, purposes or reasons for sacrifice. They're sociological, psychological, and spiritual. Um so can we talk about that a little bit and just like where what's the importance of sacrifice in this this conversation? Yeah, so we have law and of course lots of the laws in the Pentateuch deal with sacrifices. And I, I do get into the book. I don't want to dive into it too deeply yeah, about sure. the, the whole historical background of sacrifice and where it came from and all of that. But um, sort of as you mentioned, it boils down to, and this is worldwide throughout history, you find sacrifices in all cultures, in all societies, um, even in various forms in all modern societies. Uh, we, you might not believe it, but we engage in sacrifice of a sort in modern Western civilization. Anyway, uh, when you boil it down, there's sort of three directions or three purposes for sacrifice. And you mentioned them there, the sociological one. Uh, This is where uh, you are trying to fix something in society, sociological. Mm -hmm. So you are, um, you know, at war with your neighbor and we'll probably cover this a little bit in the next segment on scapegoating. But sacrifice is something in history and society that sort of helps create peace between you and your neighbor. And so it has a sociological benefit there. This is sort of a horizontal uh, how to fix the problem of sin and uh, between you and somebody else. So then there's psychological uh, this is sort of an internal benefit to sacrifice. Uh, when you sin, you feel guilty very often. <laughs> and uh, so you feel like, oh, there must be something I need to do to atone for this, to fix this, to make this right. And so sacrifice in that sense is helping you psychologically uh, inside your being to feel better or to feel like, okay, I did the wrong thing, the bad thing, but now I've done something different to make up for it. And so that's sort of the, so the psychological aspect of sacrifice. And then there's the spiritual uh, aspect, which this, of course, is the vertical between us and God. Uh, we, when we sin, we feel like we've offended God, like God is angry at us. Um, he's not, uh, but because we feel guilty, we feel, well, uh, if I feel bad about this, then that maybe means God feels bad towards me. He hates me. He's out to get me. So we sacrifice to hopefully make things better 
between us and God. And so those are sort of the three directions, three purposes for sacrifice. And we again, we find those in all cultures and all societies in various forms. And I'm not just talking here about when we come to sacrifice, about killing killing animals. There's other forms of sacrifice. But mm-hmm. uh, the main one is this, this blood, since the first word we looked at was blood, sort of this bloody sacrifice concept of killing something, um, an animal or even sometimes a human, to... Uh, to accomplish one of those three purposes. Yeah. Yeah. And then we see like, you know, these ideas of, of sacrifice in the old Testament and then people bring them forth and they, they map it onto our understanding of, of Jesus's uh, sacrificial death uh, for our sins. And so, but then we get this weird thing um, where there's a bit in scripture uh, where God's like, well, wait a minute. Like, I never really desired sacrifice, <laughs> but you guys have been doing it. So, you know, come on. Um, and so that kind of throws a wrench into the the whole idea then. Like, okay, well, if God never desired sacrifice, uh, then, you know, what's this idea about Jesus being sacrificed on the cross for our sins? Um, so it gets kind of dicey. So how do you uh, then kind of um, explain that? How, how do you, because I know you do, you talk about it in the book, but how, how do you bring about this idea of Jesus's sacrificial death? Right. So I'm convinced that the general uh, thrust of Scripture is that it is undermining sacrifice. I'm convinced that sacrifice is something that came from humanity, uh, not from God. And that's why we see some of these passages in the prophets saying, well, I didn't want these sacrifices. This is sort of something you all wanted. And it goes back to those three purposes, the sociological, mm-hmm. psychological, and spiritual. As I described those, you know, you might have, and your listeners might have sort of picked up on the fact that these are the things that we think we need to do. Oh, I need to fix things between my neighbor. I need to feel better in my insides and in my soul about what you know, something I need to do to make myself feel better. I need to do something to make God feel better about me. None of these came from God necessarily. These are internal. These are things we do. And so sacrifice came from us humans. And uh, is it's not necessarily from God. Now, again, and a lot of the readers are screaming scripture passages at me. <laughs> uh, or a lot of the listeners are, sorry. you know, what about, what about, what about? And, and that's fine. I cover a lot of those texts key texts yeah. in yeah. the book. Uh, um, so if you want to get into those, I mean, if your listeners want to, obviously there's the book. But um, so what happens is Jesus comes along and we, we think of him as the perfect sacrifice or even the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And that becomes the problem because if we say that God is against sacrifice and then <laughs> to end sacrifice he commits the ultimate sacrifice of killing a human being, and not just a human being, but his own divine son, the God, you know, this is deicide now, rather than just homicide. Um, God sort of seems to be contradicting himself. Wait, you never want sacrifice, but to end sacrifice, you commit the greatest of all sacrifices? I mean, that's sort of the way Christian theology presents it. Again, a bit of a caricature, but that's sort of how it is presented and so now, whew, it was the it was the greatest sacrifice of all sacrifices. Therefore, sacrifices are done. I just personally have problems with that. If God is against sacrifice, He should be against uh, this, not only the sacrifice of humans or the sacrifice of a God, His own Son, um, uh, but also against the sacrifice of chickens and goats <laughs> and bulls and children, and you know, all the way up and down the scale. So. 
uh, I, I'm convinced the Bible, from beginning to end, pretty much undermines this human, this this sacrificial human tendency that we have. And um, so what Jesus is doing on the cross, he's not—yes, he is the sacrifice to end all sacrifice. Absolutely true. But it's not something God ever wanted. God is consistent here. He didn't want sacrifices in the Old Testament, and God himself did not want or demand or ask for Jesus uh, to shed his blood so that God could be appeased, God could love us, God could forgive us once again. Yes, God, in coordination with Jesus and the Trinity, uh, Jesus came to this earth, born of a virgin, all of that, to die. I'm not denying that. Jesus did come to die, partially. Uh, He came for lots of reasons. One of them was to die uh, on the cross. Uh, But the reason wasn't so that you know, God can now love us, God can forgive us, things can be right in the world again. The reason was to reveal to us where sacrifice comes from and why humans have this inner urge, this desire to kill things mm-hmm. uh, in, in God's name. Um, the, you know, where this, this urge comes from and why God doesn't want it. And ultimately, this sort of gets near, near the end of the book, what we're supposed to do about it instead. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the alternative to sacrifice. So all of that is revealed perfectly in the death of Jesus. And primarily, uh, where the title of the book comes from, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. I believe that nothing but the sacrifice of Jesus there on the cross could have revealed to us this truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's hinted at, we, once we see it in Jesus— then we can see it all over the place in Scripture and even all over the place in history and in our own lives and society. But without that revelation, without that insight uh, that that God gave to us through the crucifixion of Jesus, we never would have seen this truth. And so Jesus reveals this this important truth to us about sacrifice. And um, that's why, yes, the sacrifice of Jesus is so important, but... um, in, in the crucifixion of Jesus, we see something so important about sacrifice, where it comes from, and why God never wanted it and, and never commanded it. Yeah, so uh, that makes me think to, to maybe bring in um, someone like Greg Boyd's language. On the cross, we're seeing the evilness and the wickedness of humanity revealed and being enacted on Jesus, right? So like, it's not that God is sacrificing Jesus, but it's that God in the person of Jesus is allowing his creation to do what its creation has always wanted to do, right? Um, is the sacrifice thing and specifically allowing creation to, you know, the creator to kill um, the, you know, the creation to kill the creator um, to kind of reveal ultimately like, guys, this is ridiculous, <laughs> right? right? So that is that kind of like a, a helpful way to talk about it? Yes, absolutely. I wish my book came out just a few months, I think, before his book. Oh, really? Okay. Before his books. Otherwise, I would have uh, cited him a lot. Oh, cool. Um, I, I, after I published mine, his came out, and I just, oh, I needed, I wish I could have put a quote in from here, a quote in from there. <laughs> um, but right, he has this cruciform hermeneutic, and it's sort of, it's very similar. He and I differ on a few things, but uh, overall, it's very, very similar to what I write about in Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, the crucifixion reveals uh, what humans have always been doing towards each other, 
and surprisingly toward God, uh, and it also reveals what God has always been doing towards us. And so if we want to uh, understand, say, for example, so so let me back up. The, the crucifixion, obviously, is a very violent event. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We humans kill God, the Son of God, Jesus, and we do it in God's name. <laughs> uh, you know, he's a blasphemer and a sinner, and, and he was going to tear down the temple. And, and furthermore, <laughs> we do it in uh, coordination with, with government, with the Roman Empire. Uh, and, and so we have these two forces, religion and the empire, working together uh, which usually religion and empire are at odds with each other. They're usually working at you know different directions, but here they come together, they unify uh, around this one purpose to kill this person, uh, in, in, and they do it from the religious perspective uh, in God's name. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so uh, that shows us this violent, horrible, probably the greatest, most violent event in human history uh, shows us sort of the nature of all violent events. And so you can go, you can take this hermeneutic, this cruciform hermeneutic, and you can go back and you can start to apply it to pretty much any violent event in history mm-hmm. or uh, even all over the place in Scripture. And I'm convinced this is one of the major themes in Scripture is to reveal to us the source of violence, and ultimately we see it in Jesus. But you can go back and you look at the sacrificial system, you can look at the holy wars, you know, just wars, these Canaanite genocide, mm-hmm. all of these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, throughout the Old Testament history that people struggle with. And you apply what happens at the cross to those, and you see over and over, it's pretty much the exact same thing going on. Uh, We see these enemies over there, and we see it today. Uh, We see these enemies over there, and we hate them, so therefore God must hate them. And (laughs) because they look different than us, they act different than us, they have different beliefs, different clothes, they eat weird things, whatever it is. Uh, And and, and so since we hate them... um, God must hate them, so therefore God, he hates He hates sin, and those people over there are sinning, right? So we need to go kill them in God's name, and uh, that's what happens. So, and this is what Jesus reveals, is that God didn't want that. Uh, God wanted us to love them and work with them and overlook our differences, or if we can't, just forgive them then. Uh, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and and. and uh, this is the way out. Rather than killing people in God's name, we can forgive them in God's name instead. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so uh, yeah, this, this cruciform hermeneutic, if we start to read Scripture and, and read society and read history through, and culture and politics and family dynamics and everything through what Jesus reveals on the cross, it really is illuminating and it's helpful for uh, just— understanding and grasping sort of these forces behind behind how how the world works mm-hmm. and that's what Jesus is showing us there that's why the crucifixion is so important yes and Greg Boyd's book very very helpful uh, on that right books I should say yeah <laughs> yeah tomes <laughs> yeah yeah for sure and I think um, so we don't have to dive super in, into this this idea and concept because we've kind of talked about it throughout. Um, and, and you were just talking about it a lot, but it, it's like the, the term that you use, another thing Jesus is revealing is this idea of scapegoating mm. that people, and we do this all the time, like constantly. I think this is something that we see 
in society still continuously all the time. You know, like the Republicans scapegoat the Democrats, the Democrats yep. scapegoat the Republicans or, uh, yep. you know, coronavirus, they scapegoat the Chinese or, or whatever <laughs> it is. Right. It's crazy. Yep. <laughs> and so we see this. You point out how we see the scapegoating, you know, throughout history and, you know, always pointing out those people are the sinners, blah, blah, blah. And then we even you even point out how we scapegoat God. We say, you know, the violence that we commit, we then say in God's name, like, oh, well, we did this for God. So we even scapegoat God and that ultimately Jesus reveals to us that this scapegoating just needs to stop. Like, this is just craziness. Um, like, y'all cut it out. Come on. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of scapegoating in a nutshell. Yep. Yeah. yeah, and I give credit for the scapegoating principle to Rene Girard. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yep. So <clears throat> he was a what a literature professor, I guess, of French literature. I don't need to get into the whole details. I don't know if you've ever tried to read some of his books, Josh. Uh, I have not, but okay. um, yeah, but I got like a real in-depth look at uh, some of his stuff um, in a book called The Mosaic of the Atonement by Josh oh. McNall. Uh, who we're going to be talking about to um, here in the future as well for this little series. Um, so that's where I first heard, well, not actually first, I heard the scapegoat bit first in your book, and then he talks about it as well in his. Yes, fantastic. So um, I give credit to Rene Girard for this, but I, I just ask, his books are nearly impossible to read. <laughs> <laughs> so for any of your listeners, um, I, I think as theologians, you know, you would be fine reading them, but if someone or any of your listeners. I imagine for a podcast like yours, a lot of your listeners are very astute and educated and uh, would do well reading them. So I'm not trying to, but for the, you know, for, for a person who maybe, um, look, there, there's some of the more difficult theological books that a person can read. So just put that out there. Um, <laughs> but thankfully there's books out there, like the one you mentioned and others, where they have taken some of the ideas from René Girard and summarize them down into something that is a little more accessible. So anyway, uh, and there's the benefit too, or the, the other thing is there's there's thousands of articles online. Thank God for the internet. So you can get online and search for the ideas of Rene Girard or scapegoating mechanism or something like that. Yeah. Uh, mimetic theory. There's all these different things mm -hmm. that related to it. Anyway, yeah. So what happens, and you you pointed this out, we all do this all the time. Uh, we see it as early from, from almost beginning when we can crawl, uh, two children, you put them in a room, there's a bunch of toys. They're going to be fine in that room for a while. Uh, but pretty soon one of them is going to pick up a toy and the other one is going to want it. They're going to see, oh, that toy looks good. And so they're going to crawl over there, this other baby and try to take it away. And now you have this rivalry. So we have this, mm -hmm. this sort of this desire that pops up because we see the other person have something that we want, or maybe we were t playing with it and we crawled away because it wasn't very much fun. And now the other child comes and picks it up because they saw us playing with it. And now we think, oh, but that was mine. I had it first, right? Mine, the little children. And, and, and so now one baby wants it and the other child wants it. And so one hits the other one over the head. Now we have the introduction of violence. Uh, and if, and if hopefully the parent steps in at some point on this and says, no, we don't hit this sort of a thing. And, and, um, 
this is what happens in human culture on a much broader scale. This is where wars come from. One person wants a, a, a piece of land that someone else owns or the oil reserves or the, you know, fill in the blank, whatever it is, the political power, uh, the better house, the car, the trophy wife, <laughs> uh, you know, all these sorts of things. And, and we have this this desire pops up. And by the way, we see desire in Genesis chapter four. Um where God says, desire, warns Cain, desire is crouching at your door, okay, wanting to devour you. This is where violence uh, comes from, this desire to have something that somebody else has. And then rivalry enters the scene, this battle, this, this contest between two or more people. And as this cycle continues, it does lead to violence, inevitably leads to violence. And what happens in human society and culture is... Uh, uh, violence always, always escalates. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you slap me, so I stab you, so you <laughs> shoot me, so now I'm dead. But does that the end of it? No. My family wants revenge, so they come kill you, and not just you, but, you know, your brother and your sister as well, and that family feuds. And as this continues on, it leads to a full-scale war. And Rene Girard talks about this sort of contagion of violence. If this cycle is allowed to continue, then eventually it can wipe out entire civilizations and cultures and or tribes in ancient times and people groups. And so what happened very early on, as people saw this cycle, this contagion of violence begin to escalate, uh, they realize there was a way out. They're looking for a way out. They've seen this pattern before, and if we go down this path, it's going to lead to annihilation. So what do we do? And the scapegoating principle was was uh, introduced. Now, I don't know if they stumbled upon it and just sort of discovered it, but basically hmm. they discovered that two or more warring groups of people can create peace. How? Through the introduction of a scapegoat. And what happens is these two people or two groups of people who are at war with each other and they want to maybe, you know, subconsciously or non-consciously, they want to avoid the violence that's coming. They together, and again, it's not on purpose, it just happens. They say, you know what, why, two brothers, why are we fighting? Why are we arguing with each other? You know what the problem is? is it's not between you and me, it's this other person over there. You notice that when we started fighting, it's right about that time that person showed up. <laughs> and they said this, or they did that, and they spoke to you, and they talked to me, and have you noticed how different they are? They sort of talk different, they sort of dress different, and what's happening is the two people who were at war with each other, now they come together and they unite in peace, but they direct their animosity towards this outsider, this third person, this third party person or group. And the violence, the violent tendency is now no longer directed at each other. Instead, they've come together and they're directing that violence towards somebody else, the outsider. And uh, again, like you said, we see that all the time. We see it right now. Even back at 9-11, mm -hmm, after mm -hmm. trade centers, we see that. You know, we have uh, Democrats and Republicans again, and usually, we see it today, it's always been this way, at war with each other, politically, uh, but there we come together on the courts, what was it, the Supreme Court, the steps of the Supreme Court, singing God bless America, arm in arm, why? Because now we have a scapegoat, we can, mm -hmm. our violent tendencies towards, you know, those Muslims over there, right. and we're still dealing with that today, and you mentioned the China uh 
uh, right now with the with the coronavirus, you know, with, oh, well, they eat bats. Right. Um, <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, it's it, and again, lots of people come could come around with that and, and we're making scapegoats of them. So. So anyway, yes, that's the scapegoat mechanism. It's probably a much longer explanation than you were looking for. No, it's super helpful, man. I, you know, it's great. Um, it, it's really helpful. I, th- I mean, I think too, like we can even see just to keep, you know, pushing it. Um, you mentioned like 9-11 and the Muslims, but it's it's always like if you want a solid example, it's always somebody in U.S. history, right? Like go back. It's it's the Russians. Oh, no, it's like the Germans or, you know, it's it's whoever. It's the communists. It's always somebody that, you know, people talk about this idea, um, you know, in a good way that like, oh, look how this brought us all together. Which is mm-hmm. great. Being brought together is great, but not if we're being brought together to then go hate somebody else and, yeah. and try to kill somebody else. And I mean, even just one more thing. This is the Holocaust, right? Adolf, Adolf Hitler, the Jews, that was a scapegoat. He blamed, he rallied Germany to listen to him because he gathered all the people and said, you know what? Germany's great. We're not the problem. It's those people over there, just like you said. That's um, right. And so that's a, a constant thing we see, you know, uh, throughout our world still today. And uh, finally, just real quick, um, you have this really great chapter as well about the idea of blood. Um, and ultimately, just because we, we've talked about this a lot, so I just kind of wanted to summarize it real quick. But you have this awesome line uh, at the end of your, your, your chapter where you like to find blood, where you say, like, the blood of Jesus reveals that true life does not come through the death of others, but through the death of self for the sake of others. Um, and I just think, I thought that was, you know, super beautiful. I mean, you go on to say like, well, while seeking life through the death of others leads only to more death, seeking life through the death of self leads to life for all. The blood of Jesus teaches that there is death through life and life through death. The blood of Jesus teaches that while humans seek death, God seeks life. Um, and so that, I don't know, that that like last paragraph there, um, is like I would I don't print it out and frame it or something. <laughs> I really I really liked that paragraph in your book, um, explaining blood. Is is there anything else you'd want to throw out there that that we should know about blood before we kind of wrap up? Like okay, so then what the heck happened on the cross? No, I think you pretty much defined it. You know, this whole study actually came from a study of blood. It's yeah. here at the end of the book, but right. uh, the book began by me studying blood. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it sort of is the what the whole study leads up to is this concept of blood. And that is uh, what a lot of people struggle with. And, you know, where the title of the book came from, nothing but the blood of Jesus. But yes, the the, the death of Jesus on the cross there reveals exactly what you just mentioned, that the way forward is not to kill other people um, through scapegoating and violence and accusation and blame and all of those sorts of things that we do. The way forward is what Jesus showed us. We don't call for the death of others. <clears throat> if necessary, if required, we take up our cross and we follow Jesus into death. We die uh, for others, um, and, and maybe not always physically. Sometimes it might lead to that. But the nonviolent way of Jesus is to lay down our lives for others rather than call for their death. And that's what we see God doing. You mentioned earlier that we've made a scapegoat out of God. Well, that's what we see all over the place in the Hebrew Scriptures. Mm-hmm. God laying down his reputation and his life uh, for the sake of his people to, in a way, provide them a way out of their cycle of violence. Uh, God laid down his life all over the place 
in Scripture, his holiness, his reputation. That's why so many people struggle so much with how could God be so violent? Well, guess what? He isn't. He allowed himself. Uh, he became a scapegoat. He allowed himself to take the blame, to receive blame for these horrible things that people did in his name, um, just like the death of Jesus. And the way forward then is, yes, lay down our lives uh, for other people. Uh, and you know what? Sometimes when we forgive other people, that's how it feels. Well, I've been wronged. I've been hurt. Don't they know? You know what? Um, you were wrong, just like God was. Um, yeah, you were hurt, and it hurt a lot. But the way forward is not revenge. It's not through more violence, because there's no way out of that cycle. It just continues on and hurts you and hurts them. And the other way out, the better way out, is the way out we see in Jesus, which is forgiveness and self-sacrifice for others. And uh, yes, that's sort of how, how the book does end there. Yeah, sweet. Well, so then this is going to be probably the hardest question of, of the whole thing because we just had an hour conversation. What then, like if you just had to give a quick summary, like here's a like two, three sentences, this is what happened on the cross. <laughs> this is this is atonement. How would you do it? It's a challenge. I want to see see what happens. <laughs> Good. No, the, the, I was thinking the Timberwolves or the hockey question might have been the harder question. Ah, okay, fair enough. <laughs> fair <laughs> no, enough. no, this, this is a good question. I'm joking. Um, yeah, on the cross, Jesus reveals. Uh, lots of people talk about what Jesus reveals on the cross. He reveals God to us, mm -hmm. what God is really like, and how God prefers, wants to lay down his life for us, which is amazing. But also Jesus reveals ourselves to us. Mm -hmm. uh, he's calling us to take a good long look into our own heart and our own history and recognize what we do to other people, which damages our relationship with them. And when mm -hmm. we see God through Jesus and when we see ourselves through Jesus, it's then that we're shown a better way out. Traditionally, historically, we turn to violence, redemptive violence. Uh, I'm going to hit them before they hit me, or I'm going to hit them bigger, walk softly, carry a big stick sort of an idea. <laughs> Jesus is showing us a better way out that reflects the heart and nature of God and shows us how to get what we really want, which is relationship with one another and with him. And that is the way of forgiveness. That is the way of love and self-sacrifice for others, laying down our lives for them instead of calling our friends and family to go to war with them. We can mm -hmm. forgive instead. So, And all of that is revealed through the sacrifice of Jesus, through the blood of Jesus shed for us on the cross. Sweet. Awesome. Um, so I want to try, I'm trying to like figure out how to, which this can be, you know, dangerous because I don't want to pit a bunch of atonement theories against each other because um, I don't necessarily think that's always helpful. But I see a lot of like, uh, like moral exemplar kind of push forth in, through your work. Is that fair to say? Like, I see a lot of that um, with some like hints of like Christus Victor language as well. Um, but also maybe a little bit of like re, uh, what is it? Recapitulation, like Jesus is, you know, the, the true human, those kind of things. Um, are those like three fair, fair ways to kind of, you know, talk about your view you put forth? Yes. Uh, with a heavy emphasis on Christus Victor. Yeah. 
Yeah. So that would be, if you're going to categorize my view, I was taught penal substitution, by the way, at sure. uh, Bible Institute in Dallas Theological Seminary, and it's right. what I taught <laughs> as a pastor. So, um, you know, you know what's surprising to me during this whole study of the last 10 years or so on this topic, I went back and looked, I've, I've held on to them, my class notes, uh, not once in any of my class notes did any of my professors ever mention Christus Victor. Interesting. Uh, yeah, it's just a shock to me. Uh, you know, they mentioned ransom to Satan view and the moral exemplar view and penal substitution view, but not once did anyone ever mention Christus Victor. I was really shocked to discover that. So anyway, it's a little side note. But yeah, uh, I think that's a good overall. It's sort of I'm trying to pull bits and pieces from several different atonement theories, right. but you mentioned sort of the main ones with the heavy emphasis there on Christus Victor. We didn't mention this, but Satan, he's the accuser, and the spirit of Satan, sort of this this uh, accusatory spirit, is what is behind scapegoating. Mm-hmm. Uh, we turn our foes into monsters and uh, accuse them of things that maybe they're slightly guilty of, but not as guilty as we say they are. (laughs) And uh, that's the accusatory spirit. That's the satanic spirit. And so Jesus on the cross, he is nailing that accusatory spirit to the cross. He's revealing, he's exposing, he's pulling back the veil even, saying, look at what Satan is. Uh, Look at how we behave. Um, and so he's 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 having a victory. This this victory of Jesus over sin, over death, over the mm-hmm. devil, mm-hmm. right there on the cross. Um, so yes, moral exemplar, sure, you know these other things, but but really heavy emphasis there on Chris's victory. Yeah, that's yeah, that's fair. I yeah, most definitely, especially to you know talking about the the whole Jesus overcoming sin, um, you know overcoming the powers, death, all that kind of stuff. Yep. Um, which I think is super helpful. Like I know it's not like great to again to pit atonement theories against each other um but i think christ christus victor is um if i had to pick one that's like my favorite (laughs) i like i like that one a lot although i think that other ones like it it is contingent and works well with you know bringing in other other ideas instead of trying to play them off against each other um but yeah so anyway thank you man so much this this has been an, an awesome conversation um i've really enjoyed it um, I know our listeners are going to enjoy it as well. Uh, but before we let you go and watch the Timberwolves, um, <laughs> I want where where can people go uh, to find you? Sure, my main site is redeeminggod.com, and that's where I have my blog. It's it's a blog primarily. I'm I'm only writing. I used to be publishing there every day, but in recent years, it's only been about once a month now because I'm so busy with other things. Um, but redeeminggod.com, and people might say, redeeming God, God doesn't need to be redeemed. No, it's I, I like plays on words, um, and so redeeming God, it's it's sort of a two or three meanings in there. Uh, God's a redeemer. He's a redeeming God. He redeems things. So there's no, I tell people there's nothing in your life that God cannot redeem. Mm-hmm. Something in your life that that you're ashamed of or upset about, God can redeem it because he is a redeeming God. Uh, But also one of the things I'm trying to do through the website is sort of challenge and maybe change people's views about God. And so does God need to be redeemed? Well, no, he doesn't. But some of our ideas about God do need to be redeemed, need to be changed and transformed. So that's one of sort of my main goal and purpose there at the site. And uh, people can learn about my books there. I also have a discipleship group there that people might be interested in. Uh, to participate. There is a fee for that. 
but it has thousands of dollars worth of courses behind. It's a low monthly fee, and that just sort of helps support my work in ministry and what I'm doing and my mm-hmm. publishing. People can get a, a lot of my books for free that way, the PDF downloads anyway, uh, and take online courses and so on. But but anyway, yeah, and I'm on social media, but I, I'm on Facebook about five minutes a week. <laughs> uh, I just don't have time for more. Sure. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm, that that's so. So the main place is redeeminggod.com. Sweet, awesome. Well, great. We'll be sure to to link that in the show notes as well as like I'll link your uh, author page for Amazon so people can pick up your books that way. I'll put a link specifically to Nothing But the Blood um, as a quick you know grab for people. And then also uh, you mentioned that book, um, The Meaning of the Pentateuch by John Selhammer. So I'll be sure to link that as well for people who are interested. And then. Uh, this was an awesome conversation. I really enjoyed it. And uh, so hopefully, you know, maybe we can have you on again sometime. I'll, I'll reach out and uh, see if we can have another conversation. That'd be fantastic, Josh. <clears throat> and Marty can join us next time then too, I guess. Yeah, I'll make sure I put <laughs> it on the, the right calendar. He did. He did miss out. I know he was bummed and so I feel bad about it. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. But, I'm joking. Um, but yeah, no, thanks for having me on. I really, really appreciate it. And I will love to link to this on Facebook and even on my site um, when it's published. So make sure you let me know that way my uh, listeners and readers can access your uh, podcast, which, by the way, is fantastic. I've loved listening to some of your podcasts. Oh, thanks. The interview you did with Greg Boyd on his new book recently and that one uh, recently with the article by... um, Oh, was it Cybert? Uh, Eric Cybert? Yes, yes, yes. yes. On violence yeah. and genocide. What a, a good, good discussion there too. So, uh, I think the people who listen to my podcast will love to also listen to yours. I'll be excited Sweet. to promote your work. Yeah, most definitely. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I'll, as soon as this is is published and ready to go, we'll shoot it over to you, and uh, we'll go from there. Sounds good. Sweet man. Well, thank you. And and here's how we always sign off. And since Marty's not here, he can't say go Blackhawks. So I'm going to get away with saying go Caps. (laughs) (laughs) All right. 